0: Well, hi, and welcome to episode two of the Unpacking Weight Science podcast. This episode is called Demystifying Definitions, Demythifying Assumptions. I'm your host, Fiona Willer, weight neutral professional development dietitian, academic and size acceptance advocate. This episode, I'll unpack some of the main definitions used in size acceptance circles and highlight the main myths and assumptions that lead us astray in the research, clinical and general population beliefs about body weight. In the process of writing this podcast, it became clear that I didn't have enough room to include the Dunning-Kruger effect today. So I'm going to do another episode on it, coupling it with the fundamental attribution error and social norms theories, all things that I find very cool. So they'll be good in an episode together, just not today. The learning outcomes for Episode 2 are to recognise the key false assumptions that enable the perpetuation of weight-centric attitudes and to recognise the various common terms used in the size acceptance community, including weight-neutral versus weight-centric, lifestyle interventions and weight-neutral interventions, and finally the term concern-troll. In another episode soon, I'll be looking at the differences between weight bias, weight stigma, weight discrimination, and weight-based oppression, as they deserve an episode all to themselves. So first, I'm going to start with those assumptions, the key weight-based myths. Um, Now, this is not a huge list, uh, but these are the two that really trip us up the most. And when I read through uh, comment sections, and when I talk to academics, and when I talk to health professionals... um, these are the ones that come screaming through at me, these myths that continue to perpetuate um, uh, untruths about body weight. So in my observation, the incorrect beliefs that perpetuate weight bias, and I'm deliberately living out the aesthetic elements here in order to focus on what's commonly considered a more objective health frame, are number one, <clears throat> people in larger bodies eat too much of the wrong stuff and don't get enough exercise, and that's what keeps them large. And if they would only stop eating that way and start eating properly and moving their body, uh, their body would return to its natural thinner state that it's desperate to get back to. So that's the first assumption I'm going to unpack. And the second one is that lasting weight loss is possible if you just stick to your diet plan. So let's start with the first one. So this sentiment is shared widely by health professionals and journalists and regular people of all shapes and sizes. And uh, it's a version of the glutton myth and a type of naturalistic fallacy. So the only problem is that literally all of the bits in it are are mostly incorrect. (laughs) So we'll have to unpack the bits. So we've got ideas in there about eating a certain way, about being physically active enough, and about how our body will, will respond to those two circumstances. Um, that is a belief about what the body sort of naturally wants to do. And in this narrative, the body, a larger body is being abused by its owner. And if they would just treat it right, then things would go back to normal. But the truth is that the same proportion of smaller, medium and larger bodied people have poor, okay and great diets when compared against their national food guidelines. It sits about 10% in each of those groups. So that means 90% of people in what they would classify as a normal body, uh, normal body weight, uh, overweight a body or obese body, don't eat to the national guidelines. So the proportions are remarkably similar. Um, if the ver- their version of eating well, the national guideline version of eating well, kept people thinner, thinner people would be overrepresented in that eating well group, but they're not. And we also know that dietary quality changes, which shift people towards an eating pattern similar to what's represented in those guidelines, they make people better nourished, but they don't lead to weight loss unless there's a level of energy restriction. And of course, most people will go on to regain any lost weight within two to five years. Almost exactly the same deal with physical activity. About half of Australian adults whose bodies are classed as normal by BMI meet the physical activity guidelines, compared with 40% of those classed as overweight and 30% of those classed as obese. So that actually is not that big a deal. It certainly does not explain the weight differences. Um, Increased physical activity only results in weight loss if the amount of time doing physical activity is huge and if it's new. Following those national guidelines doesn't do the job. In fact, if you were to characterise what body wants to do in terms of weight, looking at the science of intentional weight loss and regain, the body wants to protect its, adult, uh, its highest adult weight until it's about 70 years of age when weight-related body changes result in the slow weight loss and gradual uh, frailty. Weight loss at any BMI is an existential threat to the body. It metabolically assumes that famine is occurring, dials down its energy requirements, including cooling the body to conserve energy, suppresses non-essential functions like immune responses, blood cholesterol, and amps up appetite and cognitive food-eating awareness to drive opportunistic eating. A bit more about that later. And that leads me to the second myth, the myth that lasting weight loss is possible if you just stick to your diet plan. Okay, so here we have... Implicit that willpower is necessary, so weight regain is proof that the person lacked willpower, i.e. they just didn't try hard enough. So this neatly falls into the laziness myth. Given that the weight plots for every single weight loss intervention that's followed for 12 to 18 months show that weight is being regained at that point, uh, we've got level A evidence that most will have regained it all by two to five years. This assumption that it's because people are lazy perpetuates that lazy stereotype, even though the actual people in these studies are officially classed as motivated volunteers. They're bound by a feeling of loyalty and responsibility to the research study to continue to adhere to the program. And they're already a healthier group because they've self-selected themselves. And, uh, you know, not not everyone volunteers for research studies. Plus the research team has weeded out anyone that's too medically tricky because they want to keep their stats nice and tight. They're the people, if it were possible, that were most likely to be in a position to lose weight and keep it off if that process was purely voluntary. But they can't because it isn't something within voluntary with within voluntary control, particularly once weight is suppressed down to more than a handful of kilos. We know that though <clears throat> we know though that although some people go do We know, though, that although some people go back to their previous way of eating after the end of a weight loss intervention, that many do maintain the behaviours and weight comes back regardless. In a weight-suppressed state, biological mechanisms like hunger hormones are ramped up to enhance your attentional bias for food, like I was saying before. Uh, During the Minnesota starvation study, the men who were losing weight gradually replaced their posters of pin-up girls for pictures of food out of cookbooks, and their conversation topics uh, between the participants, it was a live-in study, moved from world events to obsessive discussion of the recipes they'd cook once the study was over. It was really clear, if you read um, the study and there's a wonderful book um, that comes that is written about the study, really clear how obsessive people become quite naturally, uh, when their energy intake is restricted. So metabolic processes are also suppressed to conserve energy in a weight-suppressed state. Uh, And that makes me think about all of those foundational studies about human metabolism, the ones that we use to generate the metabolic equations that we use today to estimate energy requirements, and how they would be confounded by people in a weight-suppressed state. I'm sure they weren't controlled for that. Um, Of course, those equations also suffer from wide margins of error because of the huge variation of energy needs between individuals and of individuals at different times of the day and the week. I mean, it's not well acknowledged that women use about 500 calories more per day in the days leading up to their period. That's quite a lot, (laughs) all things considered. And it absolutely explains the eating drive that many women regularly report uh, pre-period yet I've never seen it been taken into any into account in any weight loss plans and while I'm on the topic of weight loss plans, those who know it doesn't work but blame it on the person not continuing to follow the plan, well, that makes it actually ineffective too because a drug can be as biologically act- effective as you like if it's in a form that's difficult to take it in, so if it makes you hideously nauseous or you have to take it half an hour after food and twenty minutes before food, or a doctor has to administer it by a drip in a hospital and it takes eight hours, or it's massively expensive and there are other things that you're missing out on because of that expense, while the condition itself isn't actually that disruptive to your life. I mean, people make these balanced judgments all the time, in which case it's then not an effective medication. If it can't be delivered in a way that's intended in a reasonably sort of reliable way, then it's actually an ineffective medication, even if it looks great on paper and has worked in the lab. Um, So, I mean, this totally drives me around the bend. Just think about intentional weight loss like a medication again, because it's packaged up as a treatment, right? So it's well accepted that some medications work better for some people than others. One person will have some side effects that make their life a misery, although others will be able to take them without any problems and, Um, they're effective for that person. But with intentional weight loss as a treatment, not only do we really uh, put aside those uh, side effects, you know, life as misery when on a diet eventually, um, we also don't recognise it in the same way as we think about medications in that okay well if it hasn't worked for one person we try another approach and also the just plain face of it if it is an ineffective medication ineffective treatment for the condition that it is designed for then we must discard the treatment because it's a massive time energy and money sink. So there are the two key assumptions for today and now I'm going to start looking at at those terms. So the first one I'm going to talk about is weight neutral versus weight centric and what I mean by them and what is meant by them. So it should be fairly self-explanatory but weight centric approaches are any approaches where weight loss is celebrated or weight gain is cautioned against. So in weight centric views a lower weight towards the healthy weight range is seen as always good no matter the cost or cause. And of course, weight-centrism is overt in all weight-loss programs, but it's also in play in public health campaigns that have the aim of obesity prevention, even though the focus may not be on weight loss itself. So anything that promotes a drive for thinness and a fear of fatness is is weight-centric. So a bit more about that weight-neutral term. So weight-neutral interventions, weight-neutral lifestyle interventions, which I'll talk about in a tick, are sensitive to, but they don't aim to change body weight or shape. So the the term weight-neutral refers to its intention and its impact on body weight. So its effect is not to influence body weight, and it also is not meant to uh, influence body weight. So it's similar to the way that medications are classified. So, weight neutral medications have been shown to not have an, Im- an effect on body weight and weren't developed for that purpose. Something like aspirin. It's got nothing to do with weight. It's not, uh, no one uses it off label for anything to do with weight. Its whole purpose is something completely different. It's a weight neutral medication. What weight neutral doesn't mean. ...is that the elements that have been proven superior in the care of particular body sizes are ignored. So if there's a medication that, or, or treatment that is more effective or helpful for people in larger bodies... ...versus smaller bodies, um, then that's still an appropriate medication. The, weight, the neutral part doesn't completely erase it altogether. It doesn't mean that body weight is invisible. It doesn't mean that the weight-related experiences of people are erased... And it doesn't mean that the weight-related bias, stigma, discrimination and oppression that that person may have experienced are denied. Weight neutral is simply about the intention and the impact of the intervention. So there has been a bit of criticism about that term, and that really the main crux of it is about people who see that term as denying the differences and experience and realities of living in a larger body versus a smaller body. But as you can see when we use it in this way, using the analogy of a medication, um, that, that, that criticism uh, doesn't play through. So there are um, a number of weight-neutral intervention models. Uh, the ones that are built for um, health professionals, uh, well, which are most easily used for health professionals. Um, we've got the Health at Every Size or Hayes Principles, which I will talk about in another episode. Um, also, my uh, book, which is The Non-Diet Approach, um, written for dietitians and uh, also written for psychologists and counsellors, can be adapted for any sort of clinical practice. It's really the clinical application of the Health at Every Size philosophies uh, in one-on-one counselling. For the public, um, via books or a trained coach, uh, methods such as uh, intuitive eating, uh, the Well Now program, Am I Hungry, and Body Trust by Be Nourished. Um, and also uh, regular humans take on the, those health at every size principles um, as well. But because they're a bit more philosophical than practical um. They're sort of a step apart from those other um, sort of more coaching models. The underlying motivational framework that is responsible for this, for behaviour change, if it happens, is self determination theory. And that's another rabbit hole I'll be going down in a future episode about self determination theory, about how beautifully it fits in with uh, weight neutral, um, self directed uh, health. Uh, behaviors. Um, and the counseling styles which are appropriate for weight-neutral intervention models are those which are um, supportive of that self-determination theory-driven behavior change. And they are motivational interviewing, which is a beautiful dovetail into weight-neutral stuff, and acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. Uh, both of those <clears throat> allow the person to learn to accept Um, pain and move through it and doing it in a way that is driven from their own values rather than from the um, health professional pushing them to do stuff. The things that are in all weight neutral intervention models, so these shared characteristics, are that there is a heavy um, emphasis on the building of self-compassion skills, of autonomy of uh, timely, appropriate medical care. So getting what you need at the time that you need it and a treatment that is effective for the type of body that you have. Size acceptance. So the interventions do not ask you to try to change your size either way. They're not for that and they ask you to do some work around starting to truly accept yourself. Um, And then the feeding and movement skills, so body cues and mindful eating, nourishment through variety, and uh, enjoyed body movement as well. So they all have those uh, components. Lifestyle intervention, just quickly, is an intervention that has Three components. It's got something to do with food and eating, it's got something to do with movement or physical activity, and it's got some element of psychological or counseling styles that try to change your perspective or maintain behavior change. So you can have weight neutral lifestyle interventions uh, and you can also have weight centric lifestyle interventions. But whenever you see that code word, lifestyle, that's those three things. Something to do with food, something to do with movement and something to do with changing the way you think about things to maintain those behaviours. Okay and the last term I want to talk about it today is a fun one, sort of. I mean they're not fun to deal with but it is an interesting um, upshot of modern life, and that is the concern troll. So according to Urban Dictionary, a concern troll is someone who, in an argument, is on one side of the discussion but pretends to be a supporter of the other side with concerns – the idea behind this is that your opponents will take your arguments more seriously if you think if they think that you're an ally. So, concern trolls who use fake identities are sometimes known as sock puppet, sop <laughs> sock puppets. I hadn't heard the term sock puppet before I did the research for this, so uh, good to know. Anyway, in the size acceptance world, concern trolls take one predominant form, and that is a thousand variations on the "but their health" argument. You can't argue that being fat isn't unhealthy, and the extended version, no, people shouldn't be awful to each other uh, and shame them for their body type, but being obese is still unhealthy. I see that everywhere. In a few episodes time, I'll be discussing morality theory, which offers an explanation of how some people can firmly agree that bullying is bad, but at the same time seem incapable of seeing that making blanket negative statements about higher body weight is bullying. In terms of what to do with concerned trolls, uh, online, they're not usually interested in actually listening what you have to say. Um, But if it's a public forum, I'd encourage you, if you've got the spoons, to respond with something along the lines of, not all thinner people are healthy, why would all larger people? be unhealthy um, or health isn't something that's usually straightforward or it's pretty understandable to think like that but we now know that health behaviours have a stronger influence on enhancing health than body weight Um, or if you're feeling super sassy you could say uh, good to see you're concerned with the well-being of larger people how have you gone about fighting size discrimination and campaigning for more effective and caring health care for larger people in your community Uh, or you could just tell them to piss off. So but you've got more of a chance of influencing the beliefs of the other readers of your comment rather than the original commenter um themselves and visibly standing up to refute what is a very common belief in the community is great for people to see and starts to pick away at their own weight centrism and internalized bias and fears it feels really yucky to um have concerned trolls uh flock to um to you uh, either in your life family members are uh very often uh concerned trolling um and also sort of in your social media life as well if you're active on social media it can be really draining and it is really awful to have you know these stereotypical beliefs shoved uh down your throat Um, But if you've got the spoons, do push back. It's really good for everyone to see. Um, And that is it for this time. So next time in Episode 3, the topic is how we got here, BMI versus death. And it's a history of the BMI, what it is and isn't, what it can tell us about ourselves and what it can't, and how a disproportionate focus on two digits does all humans a disservice. Um, And I'm also going to cover how overweight and obesity is defined in kids and how crap that is as well. (laughs) So I'll see you then. And remember that the supporting materials, which include the show notes, research links and self-test quiz are available up front for current subscribers uh, or can be purchased in a bundle if you're catching up later. And you can see the Unpacking Weight Science website for details. Have a great day.